0: Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get together and fellowship and koinonia with each other. Um, It is good to be um, with your people. And Lord, as we uh, study what's going on with ourselves and study what's going on in the world, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate us now to those things. We pray in Jesus' name now, in, G- in, in his name, amen. All right, uh, where were we left off in uh, understanding things, we looked at... Um, Preparing for, uh, preparing for perilous times means you have to understand these four areas in systematic theology, which includes the truth about God, the truth about reality, the truth about us, and the truth about others. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hone in on the truth about us and pretty, uh, stay there a couple weeks. I'm going to drill down just a little bit because um, it's imperative that we understand what's happened to us. Uh, not only how we're created, but how we're polluted and the certain things and dispositions in us that um, always will draw us towards um, wickedness, evil, sin, and not doing the right thing. So we're going to take an in-depth look at that. So the first thing you have to understand when you know about the truth about yourself is you have to understand that you're born with a sin nature and that gives you a disposition a principle inside of you inside of you that always will pull you towards that that area now if you're not saved and you're an, uh, you know just a, a regular pagan individual then you you don't realize that you're actually a slave to the sin nature and your sin and you will do according to what uh your narcissistic tendencies make you want to do and and so you know the out, they, the the pagan outside, you know, even might not might be a nice guy. I'm not saying all everyone that's a pagan is like Hitleresque. They're not. Um, there's degrees in which the sin nature is affecting them, and and degrees in which they're allowing the sin nature to affect them. So, what ends up happening though, is that sin nature then taints everything they do. So even if they do good things for others and they do good things for the community and they do those things and they get awards for being good. Those good things are tainted by the sin nature. So uh, it always has a, there's like a pie chart if you want to look at it. So the pie chart maybe says, um, maybe 50% of what they did was good, but then there was a mixture of, of other motives and other agendas that are in that and made them do that. And that's what taints their good works. And this is why humans in their good works, since they're tainted, are not meritorious at all whatsoever. That's why your, 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 your righteousness, your good works is like filthy rags to the Lord in the fact that nothing of, uh, of what you do is commendable to the Lord because it's tainted by sin. There's, always, there, there's nothing that we do that's perfect like what Messiah would do. When G- you see Jesus, everything he does is perfect. There's no sin taint in it. He does everything in perfection. And hence, his good works is what uh, you know, is exchanged for us in, our, in not only forgiveness, but he gives us his righteousness, which is perfection, he, that he did the law perfectly. So that's one of the things you have to understand. Now, here's the problem. Now, if we bridge this to society and the society doesn't understand that human beings have a sin nature... Their inclination is to think humans are inherently good, right? And that brings a whole host of problems. So then how do you explain criminal activity? How, does, how do they explain criminal activity? Or bad behavior? Okay, so for, uh, for, uh, the environment's bad, okay? So now I understand, or the culture's bad or whatever. So now I understand that, that in certain schools, people of color uh, will not be disciplined like white kids will be. Because, in their culture, it's okay to do those types of things that are inappropriate in a classroom. I know that sounds crazy, but they're doing that. You understand, in New York and all the different places, they have a different structure of discipline for people of color. It's the most racist thing you could possibly imagine. Right, But why are they doing that? Well, again, they're, they're saying, well, that's how they are in their culture and that's acceptable in that culture instead of just saying, no, this is the law, this is how we behave and everyone's treated the same. Okay, So they'll say their environment is what, what produces the evil inside of humans. And we know that that's not true, obviously, but if you take that on face value... Um, then you can understand the social justice warriors wanting to create environments for people that would make them less criminal or whatnot. But as it shows you, it won't work. Now, let me give you an example. So the city, or most California cities, think they know how to help the homeless people. Right? Right? They think their solutions are right. So the first thing they wanna do is build them housing. Right? Let's put them in housing and that'll make them have an environment that's conducive for them not to shoot up on drugs, maybe get a job or whatever it is, not to live on the streets or whatever. So the idea is let's create an environment that's, that helps them and then they won't do what they're doing. Is that gonna work? No. So if I'm the mayor of Bakersfield and you're the mayor, what would be your solution, solution to the homeless population? Number one, it's not to build them housing. That's number one. What would be the other solution if you know it's the sin nature and not the environment? There should be a penalty for doing drugs. Okay? There should be a penalty. See, the one thing that God establishes was law. In order to curtail the sin nature and to curtail the evil of people, he established law with consequences and punishment. If people do not have consequences and punishment for their actions, they will continue to ride it out as they're doing. That's the problem. I see this on a counseling level. When a a marriage couple is fighting over different things, and someone's doing this, someone's doing that, whatever, and I ask them, have you given consequences for that bad behavior? Well, no. If I give consequences, they're going to get even more fired up. I said, well, that's the point. That's why you don't get any results, because you must give a punishment to fit the crime. You must give a consequence and a limitation to somebody that's acting bad. If you don't, the person will continue to act that way and never will stop. Well, they'll say this. Well, what what kind of consequences do I give them? I don't know. Start somewhere and work up to, to where the pain of misbehaving really hurts them. That's how far you go with the consequence. Now, if you're, if you're giving consequences and the person doesn't feel any pain, then your consequences are not severe enough. So you work up the ladder and you eventually find where you give enough redemption pain, not, not, uh, not bad pain, not harmful pain, but redemption pain to make them stop. There is not enough pain in the homeless person's life to change. Number one, either they're on drugs or they have mental illness, which is the majority of them. The other ones have decided to check out of society and not be a part of society any longer. Well, I can tell you what Mayor Giuliani did when I was in New York, when he took over as mayor of New York City. He said, it is illegal to be homeless on the streets of New York. You either go into one of our shelters, which can handle every one of you, or you will not be on the streets of New York. You will be arrested and everything that you have with your dog and your, your, your shopping cart will be removed from you. And guess what happened? He cleaned up New York, he cleaned up Manhattan. I couldn't believe it. From my freshman year to my sophomore year, I saw a complete change. There was no more homeless on the streets anymore. He had done that in one fell swoop saying it's illegal to be homeless. That's it. And they all, they all got out. Now, you're saying, well, that's real harsh. There's no mercy, no mercy. What is mercy then? Is it merciful to continue to allow someone to destroy themselves on the street by shooting up or being mentally ill where they're, they're not only a harm to themselves and a harm to others, which becomes volatile in some situations, uh, or how about this, ruin the businesses around Bakersfield, particularly down in downtown Bakersfield, where they urinate and do number two in front of the doors of the places. Is that the kind of city dystopia we want and that's mercy, that's compassion? I think not, I think not at all. That's not having compassion on a person, I'm just gonna let them do anything they want and be lawless, that is not a civil society. You have law and order; in a civil society. So, so the issue then is, as an example, they think if we build them nice apartments, they'll stop doing what they're doing. And my thing is, no, they won't, because they have a sin nature. Now, here's the other thing: well, people won't act criminal if um, if they have. A, a, a socioeconomic status and they, and they make good money. So maybe we should jump up and jack up the minimum wage. If you work at, you know, a Country Boy or, or uh, McDonald's or wherever, we'll bump that up to whatever the, the, we, we think is appropriate. Does that work? Does having more money make you less of a criminal? No, because we got a whole host of criminals in Washington D.C., <laughs> and they're rich. They're really, really rich, and they do worse than just stealing from the, the local Walgreens. Uh, you know, uh, some deodorant or something. They're not only—they're not stealing deodorant. They're stealing an entire country. You realize that? So, it, so it's not about the level of money, because if that was true. A lot of our, our ancestors here in America and a lot of, of your ancestors, where they came from, they grew up in poverty, but they weren't immoral. Why is that? I mean, you look at Bakersfield. Look at Bakersfield as an example. The origins a lot of, of a lot of people in Bakersfield is, comes from the grapes of wrath, right? I know Stein, Steinbeck wrote the book, um, and they came over... The, Anyway, they were, they were dirt poor, right? But they weren't immoral. So what's the difference? Uh, so it's not about poverty, it's not about poverty. It's about the morality of people. Okay, so, so environment doesn't work. Um, money doesn't work. Now, here's those concepts. Those concepts come straight from the Bible. Solomon had every bit of, he probably, Solomon was probably the richest man ever to be in that ancient world, okay? And Solomon had it all, and look what he did. He just went crazy, right? He went absolutely nuts. So he proved, the Bible proved, that having money doesn't stop you from sin. Now how about environment? Well, let's talk about two environments. The Garden of Eden and the the Millennial Kingdom. The Garden of Eden is a paradise on Earth, and yet what did Adam and Eve do? They sinned in a perfect environment. So you go to the millennial kingdom as another example of a perfect environment where you have Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne. Holiness, righteousness is the characteristics of that government. Everybody has plenty. It's Eden restored. And yet, what happens at the end of the millennial reign? There is a massive rebellion of humans against Messiah at the end of it, Revelation chapter 20. What did both bookends of the Bible tell you that even if I put man in a the, in the paradise garden, in a paradise environment, he still will rebel against me. Same thing. So it can't be environment. Now, now if you went into politi- politics and you carried this with you, your policies would be different, wouldn't they? But what do we do? We have created a nanny state by giving and giving and giving and thinking that it's gonna stop. Uh, criminal activity, it doesn't. Giving welfare to people who are faking the welfare system is not helping them. So we are contributing actually to people's sin natures and it's making things worse because there's no consequences. Think about this as far as how the churches used to handle charity. So now we have third party spending with the government, they decide who they're gonna give charity to, right? And that's why we have a lot of people uh, cheating the system. But in the old days in America, it was the churches that gave the charity out. Now, how, how is that, that, that more advantageous? Because the ch- local church would know the individual, would know what was going on on the ground, whether that individual was scamming, being lazy, or this really was a tragedy in their life that the church had to help. And then there would be accountability with that person as the church divvies out the charity. Now, again, if the person was scamming the church, the church would say, all right, man, Bob's messing with us. We're stopping the charity. And that would be the end of it. There was accountability to the charity. The government figured out, let's take the charity out of the church's hands, and we will become the charity organization and replace the church. And when that happened, accountability was lost. And we are not getting it back, by the way because the government likes that because once they become the charity, then they can buy votes with the charity. And they have figured that out. So a lot of this sin nature stuff is, is uh, instrumental in society, and I don't know why my thing just shut off. That's weird. Let's see if I can pull it back up. <clears throat> Did you guys just watch that disappear right off the screen like that? Were you going to tell me? Okay. That's a gremlin. Okay. Wow, that's weird. Okay, here we go. Got it? It went completely off, man. Okay. Okay. So, with that being said, let's first look then at a passage that you guys are familiar with, and it's in Romans, and it's Paul talking about the sin nature, talking about what's inside of a human being. Now understand, he's talking about himself. And as a believer, you have two, uh, two dispositions now. Uh, you have the old nature, and then you have the new nature. And he's talking about the two natures struggling inside of him. But, but the point is, I want you to see how he discusses the sin nature. And he says this, "'For what, for what I am doing, I do not understand.'" So he's talking about the struggle inside of him, between the two. It's like two fighting dogs inside, okay? For what I will to do, that I do not practice. So he says, what I find inside of myself is that I have a motivation to do good, but I won't practice it. I have good intentions, but what's happening is my other nature holds back those good intentions from me actually practicing it. So it's like we've always said, good intentions... You know, or the road the map to hell, basically. You can have all the good intentions you want, but if you don't act it out, it means nothing. So he says, I see this, this, this principle inside of me. But, and he goes on, but what I hate, that I do. There's things in my life that I see that I shouldn't be doing, and I hate them because they're destroying me, but I do them anyway, knowing that they will ultimately destroy and bring my demise in my life. Now, that's what I struggle with, too. Why do we keep doing things we know will destroy us? It's insane. It's almost, do we have like a suicide wish? Is it a death wish? What are we going to do? We're going to kill ourselves slowly? So a doctor says, hey, man, you you have to stop eating sweets. You're a diabetic. And what what does the person keep doing? Eating sweets. You want to die? You see, that which I, I, I shouldn't do, I keep doing. It doesn't make sense. Why do you keep doing that when you, told, you were told you were, it's going to kill you? That's the sin nature. Now, here's the, what's the bottom line of the sin nature. The sin nature wants to destroy you. It's part of you. It's a disposition, and it's bent on destroying you. So if you follow the sin nature and do what it wants you to do, you will die an early death. Because it ultimately wants to kill you. You want to actually kill yourself in that sense. The sin nature is evil. You understand this. It's not for you. It's taking you into a place that will ultimately destroy you. That's why you're supposed to crucify the sin nature, because it wants to destroy you. Okay. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So he's wrestling over the law being a revealing of what to do and what not to do. And he goes, look, I agree that the law is good, even though I still want to do these things. The law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's the sin that wants me to break the law. That's the idea of the sin nature. So here's how the sin nature works. If you could talk to the sin nature, your nature. If God says... Don't do this. The sin nature responds like this. I will find a way to do it then. Okay? That's how the sin nature works. It goes the opposite in reaction to the law. And in this passage, Paul will say that when your sin nature sees the law, it doesn't curtail the sin nature. The sin nature actually gets incited by being told no. That's weird, right? But he says that in Romans chapter seven, that when you're told no, it incites the sin nature. I'll show you. And that's what kids do, right? You give them a restriction and they will like prove that they will break that that rule for you. Don't stay out late, oh, forget that. Right or whatever, whatever the, the stipulation is, that a kid will naturally want to break it. Don't touch that. Why is that? Why don't you have to? Why do you not have to teach a kid that it's, it comes natural, right? Don't do this; they want to do it, right? Why? Why, in, why is it if you go in, in an in airplane and they have all these rules on the back of the door, if you've ever looked at them? And it tells you, don't touch the fire hydrant, don't smoke in here, don't do drugs in here, don't put your foot in the toilet, don't, uh, don't put uh, objects in the toilet and flush it down. I mean, it's got a laundry list of things not to do in an airplane toilet. Why? Why? Because the idiots do it. And then they see the rules and they say, well, let me figure out something else I can do in the bathroom of an airplane. And they do it. And then there's another rule attached to the door at the end of it. That's how it works. And so every time there's a law, humans want to break it. Humans want to go after it. Okay. But he says, look, look, it's, it's not, it's, it's part of me, but it's not, it's affecting my thinking. It's affecting my will. It's affecting my emotions, but it's it's kind of outside of my soul, or so to speak, it's there, but I, I, I recognize it, that it's a disposition that's taken me into an evil place. That's what he's trying to say. For I know that it that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, okay? And what he is saying is that the sin nature that dwells in our flesh, it actually has permeated our entire body. This is why our bodies die. This is why our bodies get weak and old, is that the sin nature is actually killing us. Now, this is why, um, Now, uh, let me make a distinction. The sin nature versus sin, okay? The sin nature will make you sin. That's how it works. But the sin nature also kills you. This is why, before children reach the age of accountability, that infants and children do die. Because, see, they're not held accountable, so they're not condemned. You're only condemned when you do personal sins and you understand you're breaking God's law and, and, and therefore you're condemned at that point. You're not condemned as a baby or a child because you don't know what you're doing, right? Even if you do uh, transgress the law. So babies and, and, and infants are kept out of condemnation until the age of accountability. Okay, but the sin nature can hurt them. Okay, So they're born, they're conceived with the sin nature and that sin nature will cause genetic problems and that sin nature can have have infant mortality and child mortality, children with leukemia, children with cancer, and then they die. What is that a result of? It's a result of the sin nature. Not that they've committed sin. They haven't committed any sin and God's condemning them for it. It's the sin nature. It's killing them. And it's going to kill us eventually if we're not raptured as well, right? So he says, it's in my flesh. That's why you need a new body. Because the sin nature has permeated this physical body and you need a new one. And this new body is wearing out on you. And eventually, here's what happens. Your your body eventually cannot contain you anymore because it's dying on you. And so you have to separate from this decaying body with your soul and your spirit and then be given a new body because you cannot fulfill the will of God if your body is dying. You can't serve him. You can't do the things that you normally did. And thus, a, a separation needs to happen. That's what death is in the Hebrew mindset. Death is not a cessation of life. Death is a separation. Okay? So when, you, when the, the body leaves the, sorry, when the soul and the spirit leave the body, what is in essence happening is, is that is necessary because the body can't work anymore for the spirit and the, and the, and the, uh, the soul. And so that's what we call death. The body ha- cannot do it anymore because you're a, a tripart being. You're a body, soul, and if you're born again, spirit, unity, a tripart, unity. Okay, so that's why it's necessary that we have to get rid of this flesh. And so if we're raptured and we don't die, that means our flesh gets translated into a glorified body, and then that glorified body can continue to contain the soul and the spirit for all eternity. It's a body suited for eternity. But notice that what he says, that it's in his flesh and that's how it permeates through. Anyway, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So so I wanna do good things, I say I wanna do good things, but my will is not there, why? In the sin nature, if you're an unbeliever, the will is a slave to the sin nature. The will can only do what the sin nature wants it to do. Can, Can pagans do good things? Yes but there will always be a mixed bag of evil intentions in some of that. Let's say, for instance, someone wants to do good and they're gonna go work at the soup kitchen uh, on Thanksgiving Day and feed uh, people at the, this, you know, this homeless uh, soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day. And you're gonna say, wow, on the, great, on the outside, man, it looks great. But what about the interior, though? How could that be tainted? So, so if someone serves as a soup kitchen and everyone looks on the outside, that's great. But, what, but what, if, what if the motives are wrong? What if the motive was to do that because they're running for office and they need some political points? You see what I mean? So all of a sudden, something good has been turned into evil because the motivations are wrong. And that happens all the time. People do a lot of good things just to be seen by men just to have their name on a plaque, just so that they can be seen as a good guy. The true motivation of service is not for you, it is to glorify God. So when you when you do good things and you glorify yourself, that's an evil intent. And that's why our, our service to the Lord is, is hopefully with the idea of glorifying him and not ourselves. That's how it should be. But, Christians make the same mistake. They will do things to be seen by men. Now, I've had people approach me and they want to do uh, top-notch things and they want to really serve at the high level of the church at very visible uh, positions, right? And I say, no. And I say, what you need to do is serve at the, this right here. And, and I don't tell them, but it's at a place where no one sees them. Because you don't get to go to the public ministry unless you do the behind the scenes ministry. And if you, if you can't do the behind the scenes ministry, how in the world would I think ever in my right mind to put you in public? If you can't dump the trash or clean toilets, why would you think I would ever promote you in a public view? And there's people like that. So what I do As I say, well, well, here's where I need you right here. I need you to do this thing. Of course, no one's gonna see it but it's gonna be ministry and only a few will understand it. And if they go for it, then I know I've got a servant's heart. But if they don't, and usually they don't, they won't do the menial tasks, then I know where their heart's at. They're doing things to be seen by men rather than just serve the Lord and say, put me wherever. It's like in baseball. I was watching spring training games And uh, they talked about this one player on the Yankees, I can't remember his name, his upcoming uh, upstart and all this other stuff. And they were saying, man, he's a coach's dream. And you know, why is he a coach's dream? Because he tells the coach, they asked him, what is your favorite position? And he says, anywhere you need me. And they said, thank you, that's the attitude we wanna see. And they do, they use him like all over the place, outfield, infield, all over the place. He's like a utility player. But in asking them, what is your favorite position? He says, anywhere you need me. That's a servant that says, where do you want me to serve? I'll serve anywhere. Oh, go clean the toilets, I'm on it. That's the, the mentality, okay? That's not how the world thinks. And you can see how the sin nature corrupts that, right? Anyway, he continues on. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And that's the Apostle Paul. So he's talking about this fight internally is that I have these good intentions, I I want to do it, but the problem is the sin nature will overpower it sometimes. And it it creates in me an evil desire to do something and then I go do it. And that's the struggle of every Christian is, is harnessing this sin nature And understanding the power of it to know how to deal with it. Because if you don't take the sin nature lightly, it will eat you alive. It will take you to places you never dreamed before if you let the sin nature take you. And that's why Paul says you must every day crucify the flesh or crucify the sin nature. You must consider it dead to you that it's not an option anymore to you. If not, it will take you and this is where it will take you. It will take you into going crazy. That's where the sin nature takes you because you will do things like he says, the evil I will not to do, I practice it. You will start practicing sinful, evil things because of the sin nature prompting you to do it and things you don't even want to do. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he's telling you that's where it's at, it's inside of all of us. Continues on. Where did it go? Well, the computer's acting up again. Hold on. Are you kidding me? Dude, this is crazy. It's demonic, I think. It is. The computer does have a sin nature. All right, here we go. Let's see if I can get this going again from this current slide. They come up? Okay. All right, so he continues on in this. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one uh, who wills to do good. So he says, look, what I'm willing to do good, but the problem is inside of me there's an evil presence in me. Now imagine if we taught our public school kids that guys... There's an evil presence in you, and it's drawn to do evil things. It's drawn to a narcissistic, self-absorbed, selfish mentality. It's drawn to confuse you about your identity and who you really are as God created you. It's drawn to, to make you want to place yourself above God rather than God above you. What if you told that, that evil is present in you to kids? Rather than telling them, you're some wonder kind, we're all, we can't believe that we, you were blessed, uh, we were all uh, benefited from you coming into our world, you're like Superman, and you came out of space, and all of a sudden you're here to work your wonders. We can't wait to, to see the wonders you make, even though you've never accomplished anything. And, and, and so... We, we pad these kids and we don't tell them what the real story is. We just tell them you're wonderful and you can do no wrong. That's insane to tell somebody you can do no wrong. That's insane that you just need to be true to yourself and just follow your heart. You ever heard those terms? Well, as long as you stay following your heart, you're gonna be fine. No, the heart is desperately wicked and will lead you, because it's tainted with its sin nature, will lead you to hell. It will lead you straight to hell. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warned against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So what he's saying is, look, if you're ruled by the sin nature, you're going to go into captivity. You're going to go into tyranny of the soul. Now, tell that to somebody that tells them that you can have 52 genders. They're saying they're, in their world, they're thinking, that's freedom. Right, I can be anything I want. That's not freedom. You're putting yourself into a jail. You're putting yourself into a jail because you will lose your identity. And if you don't know who you are, none of us know who you are. Let me explain something in childhood development. Children zero to two can't, they, they, they have not integrated all their stuff. So they have hands flying over here, and they, 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 you know what I mean, like a baby, and sometimes they can't even control their eyes. So they're working on being integrated. So by the time they're three, uh, maybe they're, they can start playing. But when you notice the toddler playing, a two-year-old or three-year-old, whatever, it looks like they're playing together, but they're really not. They, are, they don't know how to integrate in the social aspects. So one person's playing with a fire engine and another kid's playing with a, a, a ball. And you think they're playing together, they're really not, they don't know how to do it. But the older they get, here's what starts happening. They start becoming integrated socially, okay? And what they do is they make compromises in their identity in order to socialize properly in the room to get along with kids, say, and to sacri- and, and what they learn is they have to, um, what's the word, sacrifice, maybe that's the, the wrong word, but sacrifice their will to the will of, well, we're gonna go play trucks today, or we're gonna play dolls today, and, well, I don't wanna play dolls, well, we're gonna, that's what the group is doing today, and they learn socially how to interact and make accommodations in order to, to do those friendships. But some kids, because of their parents, won't make the integration into social aspects. And so the group will, we're going to go play dodgeball, and they'll go play dodgeball. And that might not be the thing you want to do, but look, everyone's doing that. This is what we're going to play. The person, the, the kid that starts not integrating in social mechanisms because their parents are too narcissistic Refuses to integrate and they start playing alone. Okay? And their identity is not conformed correctly socially with others. You ever heard of the thing, these kids don't play well with each other? Or this kid doesn't play well with others? Why is that? It's due to the parents. The parents are a bunch of narcissistic freaks raising kids. And that narcissistic parent is what creates gender dysphoria because when you're playing with other kids, you learn about the other gender and you learn about your gender, okay? You learn about how your social interactions happen. That's God designed. You're designed as a social creature. You must interact. It's not, and don't, under, don't let me, don't, don't misunderstand this. We're not talking about like, giving up on your principles and giving up on your values. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you're gonna be around other people and you're gonna make friends with other people, you have to accommodate the relationship by sacrificing yourself in order to accommodate the relationship. If your friend wants to go, well, we're gonna go out to dinner or we're gonna go out to lunch at this place, you may hate the place, right? But if you're a non-player, you're gonna say, well, I just don't like that place, I'm not going. Well, then who wants to be friends with you? You're, that's you, What's wrong with you, man? You go to the place and you grit your teeth and you eat a salad or whatever you need to do, but you go for the social interaction because that's the connection, right? Okay. Yes, okay, there you go, David. Right? So you're making all these, uh, these, these compromises in your relationships. So what will happen is with narcissistic parents, not understanding the sin nature, not understanding that the sin nature has to be curtailed, but understanding that I have a wonder kind that can do no wrong, that, that, and, and they're special for no reason at all, and um, I mean, they're made in the God's image, but you know what I'm talking about, the narcissism, right? Um, well, if she doesn't want to play with the other girls, then, then I'm just going to ex- exclude her more and seclude her more so she can do what she wants to do. That is setting up the entire generation of kids we have today. Not acknowledging that the best way to raise a kid who has a sin nature is to put them in social settings where they have to curtail their behavior according to what other people are doing. So if they're out on the the, the playground playing dodgeball, there are rules. Okay? When you're playing by yourself, there's no rules. I just do anything I want to do. That doesn't help the person. That actually creates more narcissism and creates a person that doesn't integrate into society very well. So you tell me, how do you deal with somebody that says they're a cis, uh, not a cis, a non-cis, non-binary, whatever? How are we supposed to relate to you if we were in a classroom? I don't know how to treat you. If you can't figure yourself out, I can't figure you out. So what are we gonna do with you? So what's happening in America is you have all these narcissistic, self-identifying people that have created their own identity but coming from the sin nature and we're creating a slew of them. And and honestly, we will not know what to do with these people in society because they can't function in the society. They really can't. You put them to work, they don't even know what to do. Their narcissistic tendencies is, well, you're working me too hard. You know, I, I can't work over four hours at Starbucks. That's too hard. And you're not giving me any, any, any help here. Well, this is simple. You throw out the trash. Well, how do you? Do, where do I take the trash to? The garbage can. How do, I, how do, how do you open the garbage can thing? Where, do, where is there a lock? What's the combination of the lock? I mean, seriously, man. What's happening is because of this, this denial of the sin nature and creating these narcissistic zombies, we have a society that's getting ready to not function correctly. They can't work. They can't operate. They, 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 their social interactions are horrible. Absolutely horrible. Remember I told you? When you're in the classroom, you're negotiating with the other kids if you act stupid and go crazy, what do the other kids do to you? We're not playing with you anymore because you're acting weird. We have all these people that are acting weird and they're saying, you better play with me or else. You better accept me or else. And the rest of the group saying, I'm not playing with you, you're weird, you're acting funny. Right. In essence, if you put it in those types of terms, like in a classroom, that is exactly what society is doing with most of these people. We don't know where to put you. And we definitely don't understand what you're doing because you're not part of the group. You're not accommodating yourself to the group, if that makes sense. That kid, by the way, they'll say this, that that kid who isolates himself and those narcissistic parents that isolate that kid, by four years old, that tendency will stay with them for the rest of life. If it's fed by those parents, if they don't integrate socially those kids into some normal environment, that causes them to self-sacrifice their own egos and their own identities. In that sense, that's how identity is actually formed. Now we know we get our identity from obviously the Lord, and He we've created in His own image. But a lot of this is the the image. Sorry, the identity that you you start with, made in the image of God, you get it. You get most of this other stuff by interacting with other people. That's why the Bible says, he who isolates himself is stupid. Why does Proverbs say that? Because when you isolate a kid or any human being, you'll destroy yourself. You need the interaction like you're getting now because if you come strolling in and saying, you know what, I got this great idea and this is what I think is going on in the world. And, and 10 people come around and you say, man, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What are, you, what are you on, dope? That would actually curtail the stupidity of the person. And so what they, realize, they realize, okay, man, I, I, I went off the marker on that because 10 of my brothers and sisters said I'm crazy. That actually is a healthy thing to curtail the sin nature because the sin nature will make you go crazy. And you have to bring it back to the, the body of Christ, which then becomes the integration of you socially in a healthy group that can modify your crazy thinking, okay? And bring you back down off the wall, or off the ledge, I should say. Anyway, he goes, um, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the body of death, he's referring to, is the sin nature killing the body. And the, the deliverance he's talking about is... Uh, the new body, obviously. So Paul is saying this, you're never gonna get out of this life without the struggle. It's always gonna be there until the day you die or are raptured. And so here's the thing, if you wanna learn about yourself, you must learn how to fight this in nature. Well, how do I do that? Well, you have to understand it better. Let's, let's go through a few things. And I am locked again. Look at that. Oh my lanta. Did you see that? Wow. Something's really off. Gosh, dog. I don't know, it just keeps saying um do that, but then it'll come up with a thing saying. Okay. Okay, I gotta get back to where I'm at. Yeah, it's... what is that, man okay okay, so let's let's yeah go ahead, go ahead, michael yes, sorry, so um based on the the passage um i guess is it just a broader sense of dealing with the identity of the sin nature, and I guess what I'm trying to ask is uh, so like for instance, how do you determine whether that's something that's a struggle versus you know something that may be falling into habitual patterns? And how do you determine something like that where you're not ending up hyper-gracing or yeah. that type of a scenario? Let me see if I can answer that. Um, the sin nature wants to create an alternative identity in you. That's what it's doing. Whereas God is coming to you and me and saying, wait, no, I tell you what your identity is, okay? And that's the struggle on identity. Either you you accept what God says about your identity or your sin nature will then tell you who and what you are. And that's scary. That's really scary. Okay, so right now, as you can see in the culture, People are letting their sin natures determine their, their sex, their sexuality, all these other things. And that's coming from the sin, the, 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 the sin nature, which is making them crazy. Okay, they're actually losing it. And, and you know, Here's the funny thing. The American Psychology Association would have already deemed all these people that say, you know, I'm this, I'm that, or whatever, that they would have mental illness, but the, the American Psychology, the Psychological Association has now told the therapists to gender affirm everybody, which is going against even their own practices for the last I don't know how many years the American Psychological Association has been active because when you start claiming something you're not, that is a mental illness. And you can't cut it any way. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. But you can't say if you're a boy that you're a girl. That would be the same as someone going into a mental institution saying, I'm Jesus Christ or I'm Superman. It's on that level. And what the American Psych- uh, Psychological Association uh, has said to the counselors is that you affirm them and their feelings. If they feel a certain way, then that's what they are. Well, wait a second, that goes against American Psychological Association that they told the, the therapist, do not allow them to identify themselves by their feelings. Do not. And yet they turned that over and said, allow, uh, affirm them in their feelings. Well, then, then that means that the guy who claims to be Jesus Christ, I have to affirm that. You see how crazy that becomes? Or I have to affirm that this guy Superman or Spider-Man or whatever or whatever the you know thing but then now this is it's changed. Okay. So when they do that, they're creating death. Cuz the sin nature creates a false identity that leads to death. Now let me explain this. The number one false identity is a rejection identity that most men have, but most women will have it too, but it's a rejection identity. And this is what kills men. So here's the, the thing that happens to them. They assume in their sin nature, the sin nature convinces them that they're worthy of rejection because someone rejected them early in life, whatever that was, parent, coach, spouse. It could be anybody, okay? So then they say, why am I rejected? So here comes the sin nature. You're rejected because you're not tall enough. You're rejected because you're ugly. You're rejected because you're not smart enough. You're rejected because of this. You're rejected because your personality's bad. You're rejected because of this. And boom, boom, boom. And the sin nature creates a rejection identity. Okay, once that gets established, it's hard to get that out of the person, even if you identify it for them. So here's what happens. A rejection identity then doesn't accept the identity that they're told, even if they get saved, they're they're told about their identity in Christ and what that really means, what God has told them, you're a male, you're a female, you know, this and that. They reject that and they assume what the sin nature tells them. Okay, so... The, busy, the, the biggest example of, of 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 identity is how they relate to others socially. That's where you'll see it in the social settings. You don't see it in isolation. You will only see it in social settings. So when rejection identity goes into social settings, they 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 tend not to be the most spontaneous, the most uh, uh, overt in their emotions. They tend to sit back. They tend to let people come to them instead of them going to other people. And they won't risk a relationship because if they risk a relationship, they risk being rejected. And they don't want that. They don't want that pain. So they keep everyone at arm's length. They'll have acquaintances, but no one close. And so they keep everyone at arm's length. They will not divulge anything about themselves. Not that you're supposed to do that to any any person, but they won't even they don't even have a small group uh, of people that around them that can they can talk to plainly. They don't have that. So it starts messing with their social interactions. And they become a person that doesn't play well with others. They really don't. Because you don't want to say, well, I can't connect to that person. Yeah, because he has a rejection identity. Or how about this then? Um, this is kind of like, you know, the 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 rejection identity will will extend past um, um, what they do in life. So for instance, um, rejection identity takes one or two paths, sometimes both, they take a destructive path path, and they're gonna prove why they're rejected and they will actually make the the, the rejection identity become a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I am worthy of rejection, I will make sure I am. And then they go into destruction. The other person might take the, the path of proving that I shouldn't be rejected and they'll prove it through works, good works. And they're performers. They perform, out; it can outperform everybody, really. But what they're doing is they're trying to say, see, I am worthy of not being rejected by my works. But that lends into a trap too because what happens when you can't do the works anymore? You have nothing to prove anymore. And so you will write back to the rejection identity. So both reinforce the rejection identity. So what God is saying is say, look, um, I'm telling you you're not rejected. I'm telling you you're accepted in the beloved. I'm telling you you're, you're part of my family. You're either going to believe it or you don't. But if you live by the old identity, you will die an early death. Because it'll stress you out so bad. It'll make you so lonely and so isolated by the end, you will die an early death. And that's what the sin nature does. It kills you early, if you allow it. But if you go to the other way and believe what God says about you, you can live free. The sin nature actually wants to enslave you. The new nature frees you. And so rejection identity has problems with critique. They can't can't bear if someone critiques them. They can't take it, right? And, and they have a real problem in relationships because if the other person, this friend or girlfriend or whatever, rejects them, um, they go crazy. And then they, they, they either will go into immense sorrow or they will go and try to get the other person back by groveling. And that's not healthy either because no one can respect someone that grovels the relationship back but that's a rejection identity. They grovel, they'll do anything, and they become a dirt bag. They become a, a uh, so to speak, to the other person, and they become like a doormat to the other person. That's what happens in a rejection identity. It's, really, it's a really difficult thing, but there's all kinds of ideas. There's shame identity, and where people were, you know, they've done some really bad things, and okay, so they come to Christ, now they've been forgiven, so if you've been forgiven, why do you still have the shame? Why is this shame still with you? Because you haven't accepted God's forgiveness. And they won't accept it because they feel, I need to be punished. I need to be punished for what I did, and I'm shameful about that. And so um, I'm going to choose a course of action that gets me the most punishment in life. It's crazy. There's some hands over there. It's crazy, but people act like that. People will do that. And it's the wrong identity. Question over there. Uh, Yes, um, this may be putting the cart before the horse a little bit. But when we're out of our body and we're in spirit and soul and we meet the Lord and you look at 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been yet revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we see him as he is. I've never been able to wrap my head around that how do I not remember all my sinful nature when I was on earth? It's almost like a a computer analogy here. It's like my hard drive has been wiped clean. Uh, Can you help me understand that? Yeah, uh, what we're, we're trying to say is your memory's not erased because your memory is who you are. It's over your life. You take that into eternity with you. But the problem is when you look at your memories right now, it's through the lens sometimes of the sin nature. So what would it be like to have your memories with a new, with only the new nature and a glorified body? You will be able to see things as God sees them. God doesn't forget. He sees everything and remembers everything, right? That's past. He knows what happened. He doesn't want you to forget either because that's part of your building blocks of going into eternity that makes you who you are for eternity. Those actually, those memories of what you did actually help you in the right perspective. But today... If you look at those things through the wrong lens, instead of God's lens, but, but the sin nature's lens, that's where you'll get the shame identity. That's where you'll get the rejection identity, and people can't live with themselves. So, so you, you, you don't forget. Your mind's not wiped. I mean, you were created at a certain point, and that stays with you. Now, I'll give you an example of memory in the Bible. The martyrs are in heaven under the altar, this is Revelation chapter six, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, till you avenge us for what happened to them? They were beheaded, for we were beheaded. And and, and so they're in heaven, and they're remembering being beheaded. They're remembering, and they're saying, when will you avenge us? So right there shows you memory that they can remember the bad thing that happened to them, but it's put in perspective now because they have no sin nature. So that's what I, I, I can tell you that, but because I've never experienced it, and you haven't either, I can't actually tell you what it's like. I can just tell you that they remember the bad things, but it's in a different perspective due to a lack of a sin nature, and that's as far as we can go on that. But you will have your memory, absolutely. You will need your memory too for when you rule and reign in the Messianic kingdom because the very things you're dealing with today, you're gonna deal with a thousand years with other people, not yourself, but with other people. Yeah, Pastor, uh, we know God gives us the Holy Spirit to help convict us against our sin nature. Yes. explain when we ignore, when we... Does he just totally give up, or is he gonna hit you with a hammer that where the little thing didn't get get through to you good point so here's how it starts working on you so when you're dealing with the conscience level, okay your conscience is part of your your immaterial being as well, and that's why Paul will talk about a weak conscience or a strong conscience in in first corinthians right and 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 That that idea that if I have a weak conscience, I'm going to lend myself towards uh, legalism. If I have a strong conscience, I'll lend myself towards freedom. Now, let me explain this. Your conscience is based on how much biblical content that you know. Okay? If you know a lot of biblical content, your conscience becomes way more mature, and you can actually live in more freedom Okay. If you have a weak conscience, like the Corinth church that was, that was all upset for Paul eating meat sacrificed to idols, and then he deferred to them because their consciences are weak, what it says is you do not have enough Bible to build up your conscience. So you're going to have a weak conscience, which means you're going to tend to side towards black and white worlds and legalism. Because Paul will come back and show them their, his freedom and saying, what is that? It's nothing. I can eat the meat. It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt me spiritually. What are you guys talking about? Because at his conscious level, his maturity level, he sees it as disassociated from the pagan sacrifice. It's just meat sold in the market, guys. It's not the piece of meat that was on there uh, being offered to Zeus or whatever. And he can separate the two because of his maturity, But if you have a weak conscience, you cannot separate origin from current practice. Does that make sense? So the origin was the meat is sacrificed to Zeus. Then it is pulled off the altar, makes its way to the marketplace, and is sold as meat for people to eat. The weak conscience is can't separate the two out. They actually conflate both things together, the marketplace and the origin of it, and they say, I can't do that. That is a black and white world and they can't separate the two. Now let's go to something more tangible that you would understand. Let's talk about Christmas. So in in the weak conscience area, people don't wanna celebrate Christmas. Because they say it's attached to pagan roots. And I'll grant you that. I know history, and it's true. A lot of what we do in Christmas is associated to paganism back then. Okay? The wreaths, the lights, uh, you know, all this stuff, the Yule log, all that stuff comes out of that. Okay, but what they fail to distinguish is how the current practice is. So they go back to the ancient practice instead of separating it out from the current practice. Now, no one practicing Christmas Christmas today is saying, I can't wait to throw that Yule log on to burn it to the pagan god. No one's doing that. Or, uh, you know, I'm not gonna put up wreaths because that's what they did to pagan gods and stuff like that. No one's doing that. No one's doing that today. So the mature believer says, of course I can celebrate Christmas and have all the trappings and decorations. It's no big deal because I don't pour those meanings into it. But the, the low conscience says, I can't do it. I can't separate what happened in 350 AD when Augustine let all that stuff in the church in 2023. You see the difference? They can't separate the current practice with the origin. Now, let me make the point. In the realm of logic and rhetoric... When you make an argument based on origins and not current practice, that is called a genetic fallacy, and you have lost the debate. When you go to genetic fallacy, and you wanna say this is now this, what we're doing now, you have lost the debate in any debate. You can't make those types of arguments. And you can't equate the Christmas tree to what Jeremiah was talking about, being putting trees in, in their, their houses. That's not the same thing. And so what happens is, Paul, to your point, long story short, but if you have a weak conscience, okay, you will be more legalistic, but at the same time, it will that weak conscience will allow you to sin more. Versus if I have a mature conscience, it gives me more freedom in the gray areas and it causes me to sin less. Because here's the thing. Now I'm going to bring in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then is going to convict you. And that conviction will be as strong as your conscience is. So if you have a... Uh, a strong conscience when he does convict you're like oh man i knew i blew it right then boom big time when you have a weak conscience he'll convict you and you like don't feel it because not only are you practicing legalism for your spirituality but you're practicing sin and you allow yourself to practice sin and allow yourself too much and so you can't you can't hardly feel it because you're not sensitive to that so the more mature you get, the more sensitive you are to the Holy Spirit and him prompting you and convicting you. Now, I'm not saying he, does, he, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of unbelievers, no doubt about it. But a new believer, they'll do more sin than a mature believer because they're less convicted by it, if that makes sense. But they'll be legalistic at the same time. So here's the funny thing is, the sin nature, if I could draw this, pulls you in two directions. It pulls you to more licentiousness and it pulls you over here to legalism. And so the legalists who women only wear skirts down to their ankles or wherever, whatever legalism they're practicing, is typically tied over here to being the most licentious Christians. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Isn't that weird? They'll be the most licentious. They'll be hard-nosed. Bless God, we're not going to celebrate Christmas. And then they'll be, be committing adultery at the same time. Why? That's the nature of the Corinth church. Right? That's it. Okay, I had hands. Where's my hands at? Go ahead, Terry. Yeah, uh, Brandon, I had uh, a couple of observations and a question. A couple of observations and a question. Um, It's the road to destruction is paved with good intentions. It's great. It's a great saying. Uh, Second of all, the the government taking over the um, welfare actually has been turned around because now what they do is they take the money and they give it to certain people Uh to solve their problems, and that's where all the money is going now. Yeah, there you go. Good point. And then the last thing is, um, so how do we – How do we handle these people? How does God want us to handle these people that are crazy? Yeah. Um, Because truly, I mean, I can recognize the ones that are are crazy and and they're doing some unbelievable things in our school systems and in our government. Uh, There's so few trustworthy people out there. How are we as Christians? What does God want us to do about that? So are you talking (laughs) the functionally insane or the the person on the street that's Mentally ill but can't function. We have a doctor to my doing? left and he can answer that question a lot better than I can. Okay. So, they're like, so really, there's no distinction between like uh, Chuck Schumer and the guy on the street, right? They're both mentally ill. You mean Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell? Yeah, there's no yeah, difference. Yeah, and those Mitch two McConnell guys. too. I'll throw him in on that. Okay, so first of all, number one, the old days we used to put people in sanitariums and we would put them in mental institutions for their own safety and for the public's good for safety, okay? So you had that situation going. We got rid of that, by the way. And um, that, that actually helped people and let them live longer. Look, if you're living on the street, you're not gonna live very long. Okay, to support someone living on the street, you're giving them a death sentence. That's basically what you're doing, because they're gonna die at some point in time pretty, pretty soon. Okay, so the best thing is, let's get them into a place, if they're not mentally competent, that will take care of them and extend their life, that gets them food, gets them medicine, and all the proper things they need. Okay. But when you're dealing with a Mitch McConnell, and you're dealing with people which right now you understand, that are off the chart mentally ill, and they have, they have, they have some serious, here's the level. They're psychopaths, okay? They're psychopaths. That's what I see Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. They're absolutely psychopaths. And sometimes they show three whites. You know about the three whites? In the eyes, the three whites? And psychopaths, uh, look at um, Adam Schiff. (laughs) Have you ever seen Adam Schiff? All the time, three whites. What do you mean? It comes from the Japanese, and and it it came to them diagnosing uh, psychopaths. Typically, when you look at somebody's eyes, you'll only see two whites. You'll see the side whites and the interior whites of the eyes. If you see the bottom or you see the top white, which means you see three whites, it means they're psychopaths. And every time I look at Adam Schiff, he's a psychopath. They have the three whites. And I'm not joking, man. That's actually, um, you ever heard of that? When you see someone looking around like that, you you obviously know there's something wrong with them. Don't you think? You don't think someone's wrong when they're doing that? That's a psychopath, man. Thank you very much. I'm going to be looking at everybody's eyes like this for now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, there you go. In the back, we got to take a break. Pastor, what was the word that you used that was on the other end of the spectrum? Legalist? Licentiousness, or just. Could you spell it, please? That's what I was Licentiousness. Later, could you spell it? l i It's l i c Licentiousness. I O U S. N-E-S-S, licentiousness. Here's the thing, just put sin. Okay? So, they'll be engrossed in sin and engrossed in legalism. Okay, let's take a five-minute break. We'll come back and look at January six. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.